0: Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies.
1: Have you ever thought about the pros and cons of a PMA versus a 510K? And I'm not just talking about the path to market, but I'm talking about a competitive regulatory strategy, competitive business strategy. Why actually getting a PMA approach might even be better for you and your business than a 510K. I suspect if you're like most, you're looking at the 510K is faster. It's quicker. It's more predictable and that a PMA might even be a kiss of death to your go-to-market strategies for your business. But folks, I want you to think about a bigger picture. I want you to think about competitive regulatory strategy. I want you to understand that there's more to this than just that path to market. And we will explore this today on the Global Medical Device Podcast when my guest Mike Drews goes into some thoughts and ideas and some tips and pointers about this topic of competitive regulatory strategy. So enjoy. Hello and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, the founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight.Guru, John Spear. And today we're going to dive into a topic that I think many of you probably, I don't know if you take it for granted, but I'm going to guess that you don't spend as much time on competitive regulatory as you probably should. And the reason for this is there's a lot of advantages to having a competitive regulatory strategy for your business and for your products and that sort of thing. And to discuss this a little bit further and give you some tips and pointers, I have my good friend Mike Drews, president of vascular sciences. Mike, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you, John. As always, it's a great pleasure to be with you and your audience today.
1: Well, Mike, as we were preparing for this ahead of time, I know you've got a lot of, of information to share on this topic of competitive regulatory strategy. In fact, you've written an article or two on the topic too, and, and we'll be sure to share those links with, with our audience as well.
0: Well, that's exactly right, John. And just sort of the the basis of this discussion is uh, on an observation that I made many years ago, and that is so many people in our business, um, they view the regulatory process that is getting our device through the FDA or Health Canada or whoever it is as nothing more than a burden, a series of hoops that you have to jump through in order to get your device on the market. And I'm sorry, I just don't see it that way. Mm -hmm. If I have to jump through these series of hoops, so be it. But what can I do to position these hoops, if you will, to make it more difficult for others to follow in my
1: footsteps. Yeah, and
0: That's what we'll get into here. This is, this is exactly what I, what I uh, call competitive regulatory strategy.
1: Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, because I've, I've done a fair amount of work on, on regulatory strategy. So maybe it'd be good to, to give uh, our listeners an overview of what regulatory strategy is and, and how this might differ from pathway to market, because I suspect there's probably a lot of confusion here.
0: Well, that's right. And that's a great place to start. And many people uh, use the phrase regulatory strategy and pathway to market synonymously. Those are not synonymous, at least not in my book, John. And here's why but the pathway to market is nothing more than the mechanism that you use to bring your device onto the market through the through the FDA for example the 510k the de novo the PMA the HDE and so on the regulatory strategy on the other hand is much much broader than that it's the whole process that you go through if you will to end up with that pathway to market because in the 25 years that I've been playing this game not once have I ever worked on a device, even the most simple device, where there is only one way to do something. There's always multiple ways, multiple pathways that we can right. use, multiple options. And of course, there are advantages and disadvantages to each and every one. So one of the things that I do, not to be self-serving, but rather just to simply share some of my best practices with, with your audience, one of the things that I do with a lot of companies that I work with, especially the, the small companies and the startups, is help them to develop what I call a regulatory strategy executive summary.
2: Mm -hmm. It's
0: not a full-blown regulatory strategy. It's simply uh, a list of their different options that they can use to bring their device onto the market, the advantages and disadvantages of each, and to the extent that I can uh, provide them with a regulatory burden and assessment and a regulatory risk assessment of each option. In other words, if you take this uh, particular path, then this is how long it'll take. This is what you'll have to do in terms of testing. This will be what it would cost. And this is your relative probability of getting it through successfully at the FDA. On the other hand, if you take a different path, then that's what you would have to do in terms of testing. That's how long it would take. That's how much it would cost. And that would be your, your probability of success of getting it through the FDA. And what a lot of companies, especially small companies, want this information for is to uh, put it into their uh, PowerPoint slide for their investor presentation. So
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: when they get to the, to the, the regulatory piece, They can basically demonstrate two things, Um, because I also work for a variety of VC and angel firms, and so I see a lot of these issues from both sides. Um, You want to demonstrate two things to a potential investor when it comes to regulatory. First, you know what your options are, and that's the easy part. Mm -hmm. But The second is that you, meaning your team, has the knowledge and experience to roll with the punches, Um, because the regulatory world is very dynamic. And let's just take the 510K as an example.
2: Um,
0: There are many devices uh, that have come to the market here in the United States under the 510K 10 years ago, maybe even five years ago. Um, And if the same device came to the FDA today with exactly the same uh, submission, it might not get through. And so the question is, what has changed? Has the regulation changed? Well, no, in my opinion, the regulation for the 510K has not changed uh, really at all since it was created in 1976. But what has changed is the level of scrutiny, if you will, that FDA is applying to certain parts of that submission. So all of this stuff goes into the general category of what I call regulatory strategy.
1: All right. Well, that makes good sense because, you know, I I do think... Like People are very confused when they're... I think you're right. I think they want that that information they can drop into their PowerPoint slide that says our path to market is a 510K and it's going to take this and we're going to use these as predicates and that sort of thing. But but uh, to your point, our regulatory strategy is much broader than that. So let's, let's kind of go to the next level. I mean, the, the topic of our, our discussion today is competitive regulatory strategy. And so let's talk a little bit about how that differs from just a regulatory strategy, strategy and how you can use this competitive regulatory strategy to your advantage from a, from a market perspective. So
0: that's a great opportunity to dig into this a little bit deeper, John. And when it comes to competitive regulatory strategy, let's perhaps to, to, to illustrate, let's take a simple example. So let's say a company is developing a new medical device, and it's in that sort of gray area between class two and class three. In other words, you could make an argument that it would be a class two device, and if so it would be a 510K or perhaps a de novo, or okay. alternatively the same device uh, could be a class three, meaning that it would be a PMA or perhaps an HDE. Okay. Well. Given in a situation like that, I'm sure you would agree, John, that 99 times out of 100, your typical medical device company is going to choose the five ten k route as opposed to PMA, yes, because it's it's it, they think it's faster, it's easier, it's it's cheaper, it's less risky, all those those reasons. And I'm not saying that those reasons are untrue. What I am saying is that there that is very limited thinking, because in that situation, if you take your your uh, device to the FDA, say a five ten k, yes, you might be at, you might be making your job easier. But who else's job are you making easier at mm-hmm. the same time? Your competition. Yeah. And so what if you say, you know what, we could take this to the FDA as a 510K, but let's say hypothetically that you're working in a large medical device company and your, comp- your competition is small and startup companies, uh, probably VC-funded. And by the way, a large company is is just simply code speak for having a lot of time and and, and money and resources. So you could go to the FDA and sell this to them as a class 3 PMA. And by the way, it is much easier for me to sell a device to the FDA as a class 3 than it is a class 2. That takes absolutely no effort whatsoever. So if I establish the bar higher as a class 3 PMA, Now, what have I done? Now, I have just raised the bar for my competition. And if your competition are smaller and startup companies, like I said, usually VC funded, that might cause them, I wouldn't say might, that will cause them immediately to reevaluate their regulatory strategy and perhaps even their technology strategy. That might even cause them to shut their doors this afternoon. That's using. A regulatory strategy to your competitive advantage, to using it as a as a tactical weapon over your competition.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. okay, that's just
0: one of many examples yeah. of what of this thing I call competitive regulatory strategy.
1: Yeah, and and you know you kind of touched on something that might be worth exploring a little bit further. I mean, yeah, I think if you asked um, ten medical device companies if they got to choose. Their path from a regulatory standpoint, they they would, and the choices were five ten k versus PMA. I suspect uh, uh, almost ten out of (laughs) ten, certainly an overwhelming majority, would say I want the five ten k path because it's faster, it's more predictable, and all these sorts of things. But you know, we've talked a little bit about this in previous conversations, and and uh, you know, the idea, the concept of being a PMA and and really allowing that to be a real business advantage to you. I mean, how how many companies do you think really have the appetite for that? I mean, are, are do they think you're crazy when you suggest that to them?
0: <laughs> well, whether they're crazy, whether they think, think I'm crazy or not, I'm not sure. I mean, uh, some of the greatest <laughs> Thinkers, you know, in the course of human history, were considered to be wackadoodle in their own time. Uh, but seriously, John, let me let me respond this way because you you are bringing up an excellent point. Uh, you know, this is very very much like a salmon swimming upstream. Um, yeah. there is an entrenched mentality within this industry that a PMA is inherently more work, more difficult, more time, more expense, and so on than a five ten K. And I'm sorry, I just don't see it that way. One of the many things that differentiates my approach to this compared to so many others is that the amount of work that we need to do to bring a new medical device onto the market in terms of the testing that we have to do the bench top the animal the clinical the computational what have you all of that work should be predicated on the biology and the engineering in other words it which it should be based on the disease it should be based on the uh, how well established the technology is it should be based on the risk it should be based on all of the biology and engineering it should not underline not be based on the regulatory pathway mm-hmm. Um, I think the regulatory pathway is nothing more than the package that we put this information into uh, in order to uh, present it to the FDA. So in other words, I might have one set of testing that I do for a medical device, and I put it in one box with one particular kind of uh, wrapping paper and bow on top that's stamped 510K, and I might take the exact same uh, testing data and put it into a different box, a different package, a different wrapping paper and bow, and stamp that as a as a as a PMA, and it gets really fuzzy in that area in between. You know, for example, uh, as you know, John, more and more five ten k devices coming to market are requiring clinical data. So at the end of the day, right. if you're going to be doing a five ten k with a clinical trial, is there really much of a difference than just doing a PMA? Yes, there are some paperwork, of course. Yes, you have some manufacturing differences. For example, there is a requirement in the PMA that you require, uh, I'm sorry, that you include manufacturing information in your PMA submission. That requirement does not exist, at least not yet, in the 510 k Although there has been uh, discussion at FDA, some of it facilitated by me, about adding that requirement to the P- to the 510k, I personally think it's not a bad idea. There are a few um, uh, administrative differences, but at the end of the day, is there really a a, a big difference to, to to most companies between doing a 510k with a clinical trial versus a PMA? I think probably not as much.
1: Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. a really good point, and you know let's a couple other things on this topic that that um, might make sense to get into um, guidance documents i mean there there are all kinds of guidance documents for all sorts of things, and yeah you know, I know you and I've chatted a bit about that in the past, and I recall you sharing a story uh, i think i don't remember if it was a pre sub or but you had some meeting with with f d a and there was some discussion about a particular topic and and of course i'm paraphrasing and I might have some of the details but uh, mixed up, but but I remember you sharing that that there was some discussion about a particular thing, and I don't remember what that thing is off the top of my head. But but the, the information that FDA was providing during this discussion was counter to what what was in their own uh, guidance document, and and I recall you, um, I don't know if you had a hard copy of it, but you, I remember you pu- pulling out that guidance document as as a reference and pointing out and citing you know specific parts of that guidance document during that discussion. So talk a little bit about how you can use guidance documents as a competitive weapon and and, in those types of discussions with FDA and and, in submissions.
0: Well, I'm very flattered that you remembered that story, John. That was, I think, several podcasts ago. I think what you were referring to is the real-world evidence guidance that FDA put out uh, just last year. Um, where I literally yeah. held it up and said, uh, you know, "Here's in this new guidance that you know is telling us to do exactly what we're proposing to do, and you're telling us that we can't do it." Um, so, so thank you for remembering that. That actually is uh, is perhaps not a great example of competitive regulatory strategy. So let me give you a, okay. another one to to add to your repertoire. So using guidance as a is also something that I think many people really. Uh, or quite frankly, never even think about. And uh, so let me share with you a not-so-hypothetical example. So let's say you're working on a device that is new and novel, that there is nothing like it, uh, and you're bringing it onto the market as, you know, as a 510K, de novo PMA, what have you. One of the opportunities that you have is to develop testing methodologies, benchtop, animal, clinical, and what have you, in order to show, to show that your device is safe and effective. Well, the challenge, and I used to spend a lot of my time as a young R&D engineer in this business uh, a long time ago doing exactly this, one of the challenges is how do you design that test methodology so that it's favorable to your product and at the same time makes it more difficult for other companies to to match your result. If you can design your test methodology uh, to do that, And that test methodology goes into your submission. Uh, Remember, this is a new uh, novel product, so there is no guidance for this kind of a product yet. The way FDA typically puts together guidance uh, is, now I'm talking here, uh, mostly the product development guidance,
2: right, like right, right.
0: guidance for clinical trial and so on. They take a look at the first few submissions, and I've, I'm, I'm often part of this process myself. They take a look at the first few submissions into an area, and they pick out the test methodologies, for example, that they like, and those go into what then becomes the guidance. And so... Uh, what happens if your test methodology now goes into the guidance. Now, not only have you gotten your device onto the market, but at the same time, you've made it more difficult for your competitors to bring their devices onto the market um, because they will have to do what is in that guidance. Now, of course, this is purely hypothetical. How could you prove it? Well, I have to be a little careful what I say here, but I did publish this in, the, in an article. I'd be happy to, to send it to anybody if they send me an email. Um, Let's say that you describe that uh, test methodology in your submission in a grammatically awkward fashion. Not grammatically incorrect, but it's something that Native uh, American uh, uh, English speakers would would probably not say it that way. and. Eventually, you know, sometime later, that that test methodology shows up in the guidance with your grammatically off awkward phrase describing it. Could that still be coincidence? Of course it could. But I think probably not. Mm -hmm. I I, I probably shouldn't say this in a recorded podcast, but it's just but it's not it's not just my graduate students who have mastered the ability to copy and paste. Yeah, my friends at FDA and in companies as well. So, uh, using guidance uh, as a competitive weapon um, to make it more difficult—it's certainly not as strong as uh, you know something like a, like a patent, like intellectual property. Sure, but making it more difficult for people to follow in your footsteps. Uh, once again, at least in my experience, John, most of my regulatory colleagues—they don't even think in those terms.
1: Right, that's a really good point. Well. Mike, I know there's there's all a few other twists and turns when it comes to uh, competitive regulatory strategy. I know there's some other types of submissions. You know, like you just like we talked about the PMA five ten K angle. I, I can imagine there's a similar angle from a de novo standpoint. And I don't know, we um, we recently talked a little bit about. 510k versus 513g and de Novos and that sort of thing on a on a previous podcast too, and you know certainly encourage the audience to go check that out to get a little bit more insights about that. But but I can imagine that like a de novo might be uh, another type of, of advantage similar to to that angle from a PMA. But you know are there, are there some differences that you might see ver, you know, from a de novo and and why one would consider that? Because I mean. It used to be, I mean, I know, I don't think it's the case today, but it seems like it used to be if your product was a de novo, it was almost like death to the to the project. It wasn't going to go any further because it was going to go in some sort of purgatory F- FDA. But that's really, not the, that's really not the case these days, is it?
0: No, the de novo is becoming more and more popular, John, which I think is a good thing based on changes that Congress made in the law about uh, five or so years ago now. Uh, so simply put, um, a lot of people, you know, everybody knows that the 510K is the workhorse of this industry, no question about it. But what a lot of people assume is because it is used, sorry, the reason why it is used so often is because it's the best. And okay. I do not make that assumption. You know, McDonald's is one of the most successful restaurants in the world. Is it, is it because they make a good hamburger? Probably <laughs> not. So just because everybody uses the 510K doesn't necessarily mean that it's the best, and certainly not in all situations the De novo, on the other hand, offers some very significant advantages, especially under the category of competitive regulatory strategy, not the least of which is you're starting out with, as I describe it, a blank slate, a blank canvas when it comes to the labeling. And you can paint onto that canvas anything that you want. Mm-hmm. So let's make, let me make this as simple as I can. The 510K, you can spin it in many different ways, but at the end of the day, it comes down to one thing. You have to show that our device is basically the same, i.e. substantially equivalent in terms of labeling and technology, as the um, uh, competitor, as the predicate device. Sometimes that's easy to do, sometimes it's not. Uh, But with the de novo, we don't have that limitation. We can paint onto that labeling canvas, if you will, anything that we want. And once again, this gives us the opportunity to set the bar higher uh, one of the examples I use from my own experience is uh, several years ago, a company came to me with a sterilization kind of device.
2: Mm-hmm. They
0: were tempted to bring it onto the market as a 510K, and there would be nothing wrong with them doing it, but they would have created essentially a me too. In other Mm -hmm. words, there would be nothing different of their device compared to the 50-plus other devices out there that do the same thing. So I said, tell me a little bit about your technology. Well, long story short, they were able to achieve the same level of technology. I'm sorry. They were able to achieve the same level of sterilization at a significantly lower temperature point. So what I suggested to them, which is exactly what we did, is we include that technology claim. In our high-level labeling and do that as a de novo, it would be more difficult to do it as a 510K. Not impossible, but more difficult. But we did it as a de novo, and now what have we done? We got that device onto the market. One of the downsides of its successful de novo is that it uh, creates a predicate that somebody else can use as a 510 k Right. But we can make it more difficult for them to do that. Mm-hmm. If we include that technology claim, you know, we achieve sterilization at a lower temperature. Now, they cannot use our device as a predicate unless and until they meet our technology. And, oh, by the way, if we own the IP on that technology, that ain't going to happen anytime soon. So, once again, this is a – perhaps I'm I'm biased because this is my idea, but this is a very savvy way to use regulatory strategy, in this case for a de novo over a 510K, Mm -hmm.
1: competitive advantage yeah it's those' some really good insights and and folks i I assure you that this topic uh you know you you could spend all day talking with Mike about competitive regulatory strategy, and he's got a lot of tricks and tips uh that that he can help you with that um you know like I said, we're just skimming the surface today so mike any any closing thoughts on this topic of competitive regulatory strategy uh for today's podcast?
0: Well, I would just uh, leave the audience with one final thought, and this is something that I've shared with with uh, with you and some of our other podcasts. And I don't mean this to be arrogant by any means, but I do say it to make to make a very important point, and that is every uh, I'm sorry, average regulatory professionals know the rules, but the best ones know the exceptions. So the challenge for your audience is not to simply uh, follow regulation. Uh, blindly, uh, just just because everybody else has done it. I mean, if that's to your advantage, then fine, nothing wrong with that. But always be asking yourself is there another way? Is there a different way? Is there a better way that I can, uh, uh, do this? Uh, or at least, uh, something that I can shoot that I can uh, consider. And, uh, specifically on the topic of competitive regulatory strategy, because I have put out uh, as John pointed out earlier, a lot in this area. Um, if anybody wants to send me an email, uh, I'd be happy to send you some resources. Some of them are publicly available, some of them are not, uh, to learn more about it because I think, as I said, this is, at least in my experience, not something that uh, that, that many people really really think about.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. I, folks, uh, Mike's spot on. I mean, I, I suspect that that many of you have have this approach where you're just looking for that path to market. And regulatory strategy, especially competitive regulatory strategy, is much more sophisticated than than just figuring out the quickest and shortest, uh, least burdensome approach. There are some opportunities for you to consider this regulatory strategy as a competitive advantage for your product and for your business. So if you'd like to learn more.
0: Perhaps just just one last thing to quickly interject in terms of uh, competitive, because I guess, as my wife would probably say, I'm a pretty competitive person. Um, And I've used this metaphor in some of our discussions as well, Uh, but I view the entire relationship between the company and the FDA as a poker game in every sense of the word. And just because somebody understands the rules of poker doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be a good poker player, and it certainly doesn't mean they're going to win the game. I want to do everything that I can. Legal, of course, I don't want to be wearing any orange jumpsuits in order to win the game. And competitive regulatory strategy is, by definition, part of winning that game. As a matter of fact, taking that metaphor a step further, I don't want to just win the game. I want to try to make it more difficult for players to get into the game in the future.
1: Okay. That's a really good. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Really good point to to end on today too. So Mike, thank you for for sharing an overview of competitive regulatory strategy. And folks, you know, again, greenlight.guru, we're um we're out there changing the world just like Mike Drew is a vascular sciences. And uh, if if you want to be part of that change to improve the quality of life and make sure that you're doing things in a competitive way, but in a way that makes good sense, good, prudent engineering sense. And when it comes to especially things like your quality management system and your design controls and your risk management activities, of course, you can go copy and paste all that you want, just like Mike said, for your regulatory standpoint. But, but that doesn't take a lot of thought and a lot of effort. And it doesn't give you a competitive advantage. So you know, I would encourage you to go to Greenlight.Guru, check out what some of the most innovative companies in the world, frankly, are doing these days. And that's using the Greenlight.Guru platform to enhance their compliance and get their products to market a little bit faster while having all of their data and information and documentation records in a single source of truth known as Greenlight.Guru. So check it out. Uh, You might uh, find another opportunity to yet, have more of a competitive advantage in this extremely competitive market space. So again, thanks to Mike. And uh, this has been John Spear, the host, founder, and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight.Guru. And you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast.